get me. From Studio P, Sausalito, home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. The number one comedy podcast about comedy... Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast commentator, Mark Hershon. Yes, that's right. I am Mark Hershon, and this is Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast. Epi 49 coming at you. 49. Exciting. Just on the verge of episode 50. In addition to the comedy podcast clips we have in store this show, our special guest Hal Loveland will be here in an interview I recorded this past weekend when he was up performing with the Thrilling Adventure Hour at the 12th Annual SF Sketch Fest. Hal is their announcer, and he'll be talking not only just about the Thrilling Adventure Hour, but also the voiceover and cartoon work he does. He even has some voice-saving tips, which some of you podcasters out there who keep straining your voice, because you haven't learned how to use the apparati properly, should probably take some notes about. I'm not sure where you're getting your podcast from. Lord, I hope it's not off some tawdry lowlife in a back alley somewhere. But if you prefer to stream rather than download, then check out Stitcher Smart Radio. You'll find Succotash up there. And uh, we've been showing up in the What's Hot lately. We've been showing up in the Most Shared lately. So thank you for passing the Succotash and giving us some thumbs up over there at Stitcher. You'll also find their Stitcher Top 10 Comedy Podcast lineup, which is based on the past week's listeners and their habits. Uh, So without further ado, here's the countdown from the Stitcher Top 10 Comedy Podcast. At number 10, The Church of What's Happening Down. That's down one. Doug Loves Movies is down one. Real Time with Bill Maher is back up in the top 10. Now, it's not really a podcast. It's his HBO show that's been sliced and diced and put together. But uh, it has leapt up to the number 8 spot. That's up 31 spots, real time with Bill Maher. And uh, here's a little sample. I took a couple of the um, new rules segments that he does and uh, put them together to make uh, a few few moments with Bill Maher. So uh, here's a taste. New rule, Red Book Magazine must change its name to Wait room. <laughs> the magazine's so dull you'd actually rather sit there and wonder if you have cancer. <laughs> Do I want to know how Faith Hill makes jello? Or would I rather imagine being buried alive? If you've been in a waiting room, you know the answer. <clears throat> New rule, it works for sports stadiums. So Kim Kardashian must sell corporate naming rights to her baby. (laughs) Welcome to the world, Citibank Kardashian West. (laughs) New rule, liberals must stop being so shocked and outraged at the fact that the NRA would choose this moment to release a game called NRA Practice Range for smartphones. (laughs) Honestly, what part of asshole didn't you understand? (laughs) And where's the harm? The worst-case scenario is that a few nuts get even nuttier, and the best-case scenario is that They play it while driving. (laughs) New rule, someone has to tell Mohammed Abdi Hassan, the Somali pirate who announced his retirement from the pirate business this week, (laughs) that pirating isn't something you can just quit and live to tell about. (laughs) It's like being in the mob or married to O.J. Simpson. At the very least, admit that the real reason you quit was the shame, because holding others hostage until your demands are met makes you no better than a Republican congressman. Oh! 
you can find some fresh slices of Real Time with Bill Maher over at castroller.com, iTunes, also, of course, Stitcher Smart Radio. We continue with the top 10 countdown. At number seven is the original Smodcast with Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier. They are up seven spots to uh, get in the top 10 this week. Uh, here's a little bit of it. We haven't really ever played a clip from the original Smodcast. It's the show that started off his whole Smodcast network. Uh, they're celebrating their sixth year uh, this year, so congratulations to them. And here's a little clip off of Smodcast's latest edition, number 238. Um, here's a news article, Scott. Okay. Um. I'm going to leave the title up ahead because it always, of course, gives away the best parts. But it's written by Meredith Bennett-Smith, founded at the HuffPost. The case of a Connecticut priest indicted this week on charges of distributing crystal meth took a bizarre turn as a strange new details came to life. It turn- took a bizarre turn? That's That's what I found amazing right away. I'm like, wait, you got me. You had yeah. me at meth, like a, a, a priest and meth. Uh, strange new details came to light concerning the religious leader's life after leaving the priesthood. Monsignor Kevin Wallen, who went on sabbatical prior to stepping down as pastor of the St. Augustine Parish in Bridgeport, Connecticut in 2012, allegedly sold shipments of meth to undercover cops several times between September 2012 and January 2013. So over the course of about... October, November, December, four months. Yeah. He sold undercover cops shipments, allegedly. Of meth. Of meth. Wallen, a longtime member of the Sacred Heart University Board of Trustees, was arrested January 3rd. According to the New York Post, the meth Wallen sold during the other undercover drug sting tested as 98.5% pure. So he had good shit, dude. It's like it's fucking anointed. Yeah, he's like fucking holy consecrated this shit. Of course, it's pure. Jesus is meth. Yeah, Jesus would like it if he liked meth, but Jesus don't like (laughs) meth. Yeah, I don't want to go off on a tangent. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I can't speak for Jesus. Well, actually, I can as a priest. (laughs) Yeah, let me say. Rome tells me I can. So now it appears the man some have nicknamed Monsignor Meth. (laughs) <laughs> in a clever <laughs> brainstorming <laughs> alliterative turn not seen since somebody else had an m name monsignor meth may have engaged in a host of illicit and unconventional activities in addition to the drug dealing this is the bizarre turn we're gonna hear it new allegations include cross-dressing that to me doesn't seem that it's like you wear a dress already dude it- Holy shit. Well put. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. yeah. Like, put on some pants. Dude's wearing a dress already. What'd you say? No. <laughs> no. no, no, no. I always say it was a big deal. Why it's do you think bizarre. I was talking to you? <laughs> True. What? And. <laughs> what was that? senior mess. He. Okay, so Cross dressing. Yeah. Having sex in the St. Augustine rectory, which sounds even <laughs> yeah. dirtier than it is, yeah. man. He's like, put it in my rectory. Let's put the rect in rectory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to wreck it in the rectory, man. The rectumery, Scott. And laundering meth profits through a North Haven sex shop called Land of Oz. Awesome. I know. It's a pretty good name. Um, 
Diocese spokesman Brian Wallace told the Connecticut Post that while officials had received no complaints about Wallen's alleged drug dealing, parishioners became alarmed in 2011 by Wallen's increasingly bizarre behavior. A source told the Post that rectory officials were aware that Wallen occasionally cross-dressed, as Scott points out, if you're wearing robes that, uh, you, you know, some could make the argument you're He's like, I like to feel the air in my junk. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, well, that's undressing. I'm in your mouth. Puts it on Front Street for us all. Says what we're all thinking. <laughs> we love the wind in our junk. Let us pray. There's a little Smodcast for you. Catch more at Smodcast.com, iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, back to the top ten, and no movement in the top six this week. And number six is More Stories with Jay Moore. Number five is The Nerdist with uh, Chris Hardwick. Number four is NPR's Car Talk Podcast. Number three, WTF with Mark Marin. Number two, The Adam Carolla Show. And still the reigning champ at number one, The Joe Rogan Experience. All right, so that's your Stitcher Top Ten Comedy Podcasts. And uh, right after a word from our sponsor, I'll be back with more clips and my interview with special guest Hal Lovett. Treasured friends, remember how silly and retarded old grandpa looked waddling around the house with his pants pulled up to his chest while jiggling so much change in his pockets, you thought he might just secretly be one of those street corner Santas? Well, you never have to be jealous of Gramps again. Thanks to Henderson's new high-waisted hip huggers. With today's young people fast running low on yesterday's styles to rip off and pretend that they invented them, Henderson's high-waisted hip huggers are here just in time to put the hip back into hipster. Whether you sport a belt or suspenders, a vest or scraggly mustache, our hip huggers are perfect for that seedy yet sassy, fresh from the second-hand store look. And to complete the look, Henderson's has laced each and every pair of high-waisted hip huggers with the smell of mothballs and elder's urine. Even though these trousers are brand spanking new, your most dickish and judgmental friends won't be able to tell that your new pants were not recently worn by the deceased. Originally designed for Wilfred Brimley, Ed Grimley imitators, and endorsed by TV's lovable curmudgeon, the late William Frawley, Henderson's high-waisted hip huggers are available wherever people get their clothes out of a bin on the sidewalk. That's Henderson's, makers of fine trousers and pantaloons since 1847. And now, back to Suckatash. I was just interviewed by Jason Parsons over at Seven Days a Geek podcast. The show we did was kind of a nuts and bolts about podcasting. And the least I could do was ask him to send along a clip from his regular show for us to feature. Here he is getting the lowdown from his pal TK1 on how his buddy managed to break his toe. So anyways, why are you not clumsy? Well, because I didn't break it by being clumsy. What is it you didn't break, Grant? <laughs> well, I didn't break a lot of things. Were you wearing your kilt when this happened? The only thing, <laughs> the only thing that he did not break was his foot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't. Oh, break. Wait, I had that backwards, didn't I? That's correct. Whatever. I broke every. No. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I broke my toe. What's toe? I broke my pinky toe. I snapped it off right at the foot. No, you said what? you snapped it, <laughs> snapped off. it off. And that it makes me were... think like it was just dangling by the flesh know, that was right? still attached. Well, I thought they had to go find his <laughs> shoe to it get is, it on. Is it there. hanging at the end of a fucking rainbow somewhere or it what? Is, it is currently taped to my foot and my other toe. 
<laughs> it is, it is correct it. location or just somewhere random? Is, nope. <laughs> next it's to another toe. Big toe. <laughs> it is. It is correctly set right. Uh, right where it needs to be. It was a clean break. It's just a pinky toe. You don't really need those. You know what? Yeah, you should have just took some clippers and just got uh, rid of it. Knocked uh, it off like a dog. The, like here's the thing. Here's the thing. No, no, no. I did what like what is it? Eighty percent of all people do. You when have, they break their pinky toe, do you know what that is? You kick scream, the dog. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, yell and scream. <laughs> Beat your kid. <laughs> no. I thought he meant the action that broke the toe. <laughs> I, I do mean the action that broke the toe. Okay. It I, wasn't I, kick the dog? It is not. <laughs> it is smash it on the uh, footboard or the post of your bed. Mm. And yes, Did I you do, look this up on the internet? Like statistically, just all pinky broken toes are from breaking <laughs> it on your bed? That's correct. You're full of shit. Look it up. Did, Did you, you instantly go limp? I, uh, my knees buckled. <laughs> Dude, oh, I thought you meant like he was running with a hard on. <laughs> that was my, that was my uh, impression. So we, we were sleeping in, and it had been a late night, and we were tired. And the kids, they get up at 6, 6. You were sleeping in until 6.30? Yeah. Wow. Well, I probably would have slept longer if it wasn't for the kids. So my son, he just starts, he's going off the rails at his sister. This is what he said. He said, make me breakfast, bitch. <laughs> Yeah, no, he didn't say that, but just the same. He left he, the bitch part out. He, was, he dropped the F-bomb. <laughs> right. Then they, I would have still caught him with my broken toe. But he opened the door. But that's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> hey, did he, you have a story you were trying to tell Grant? Yeah, you oh, know, okay. so, but he might as well open the door and did that because okay. that's about how I reacted. when. Right. He, so <laughs> what happened is he, he was just going off the rails at his sister. And from the other room, of course, I'm like, hey, knock it off, you know, stop it, or I'm going to come out there, the whole nine yards of a parenting. And... and I hear him going, meh, 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 right? And so I'm getting a little Is bit madder. And, and I'm, yeah, I'm getting a little madder. And I'm like, Grayson, you don't stop it. I'm going to come out there, and I'm going to battle your butt. And, uh, of course, I, I never spank my kids. It's all bark and no bite. He grabbed bite. his diaper dick and was like, <laughs> <laughs> He walks into the door, and he does the verbal equivalent of that. He walks right into our bedroom door, and he, he leans in. three-year-old pelvic thrust? And he goes... <laughs> And he goes, he goes, eh, no like, three-year-old challenges me. <laughs> I lowered my voice real deep, and I'm like, that's it. And I yelled it really loud, and I threw the sheets off, and I swung my feet out from the bed, and I hit the floor, and I started to run after him. Like, my, my foot slipped out from underneath me, and it basically, at 900 miles an hour, just slid <laughs> right into the... Right into the post of the bed, uh, and we have a solid oak bed. That, that I mean, it's really don't brag. It's it's, uh, it's really nice. And you didn't scratch it. It was did carved you? from one tree, and <laughs> it's. <laughs> <laughs> and seriously, I kid you not. You could hear Grant my, hand carved it in yeah. his kilt. <laughs> <laughs> you could hear my foot, my toe rather, uh, snap like a twig. I mean, it's it's like, and it just. It was, and, and right away, my knees buckled. I fell back on the bed, and the whole time. How many towels did it take to wipe up your tears? <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Grace and looking at him going, ha ha, motherfucker. No, he didn't. It, he actually got really upset because I was like, Grayson, oh my God, if I catch you, I'm <laughs> doing that little bit. And I'm like, and at, the, at first, it doesn't feel like your your toe is broken. And there's, there's like a minute to. Did you have like that? Boom, boom. 
in your ears. <laughs> yeah. Like you could hear your heartbeat through your toes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jason and TK1. Go to sevendaysageek.tumblr.com. Seven Days a Geek is spelled just like it sounds, except after the initial S in seven, there's the number seven. So it's S7EVEN, Seven Days a Geek. They are also on iTunes, and my interview uh, that I had with Jason on his show should be dropping soon. I will let you know uh, either on the show here or via Twitter or both or via the Facebook page. Yes, you can like our Succotash Show Facebook page. You can even hear the show streaming uh, every episode up there. So um, that might be a good reason to drop in, like our page, and just hang out for a bit. The three women behind the broadcast... That's B-R-A-W-D, CAST, takes web stealth to a whole new level, as I was trying to find out more about their show. On their home site, they're known only by their Twitter handles, ButtRockBetty, JennyK97, and Holes in Seattle. The first two are the talent, the third is their producer, and in this clip, we're hearing about the art of spanking. So, yeah, tell me about the show. Like, um, we know you guys went to see um, the band that we had on last week. So tell me about yeah. that. The Van Epps. Um, and they, they put on a good show. But as soon as we walked in, there is a band standing up there. And they've all got really long hair. They looked like almost back to grunger days. Seriously. Oh, but Halls and I stopped in our tracks because the lead singer was standing right there. And he had a nice chest and no shirt on and long hair. And he was really rocking it out. And we're like... Oh, yeah, this is going to be a good night. <laughs> it was. I swear, I was in long hair heaven. I was like, wow. It was delicious. That's awesome. Oh, my um, So, but, you know, so we're not like these, you know, like, you know, we're not in our early 20s. So we didn't head out into the crowd and, like, you know, slam around with everybody. So we got a table at the bar and was watching the show from there. And that was really great until, like, the smelliest man I have ever smelled in my life <laughs> came up and stood right in front of us. Like, he was a big, giant man that had the worst stink on him a fuck imaginable. And I'm I sitting there. Picture. God, I was sitting there trying to gag down my drink. Oh, oh God, was so gross. And he was, like, he had no neck. I mean, he looked like Jabba the Hutt. He was, yeah. like, had this <laughs> pointy head and then it just went down like a freaking triangle and those youngins that don't know who Jabba the Hutt is that are listening <laughs> well, Star Wars of course he stunk to the freaking high heavens I was like Jesus I'm, I'm gagging right now just thinking about it <laughs> it's the french fry don't even lie mm -mm. you really are <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> it was so nasty Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, I mean, so what was it like? I mean, were you guys like the old, older? Were you guys younger? Were you guys like... No, there was there was a really, a really good mix of people there. We were by far not the oldest people there. No, I felt, Which, yeah, it was, I felt pretty comfortable. I didn't feel like I was the oldest one there by far. No, and I was really kind of afraid of that um, because, you know, the band, it's a bunch of young people and... But, no, there was lots of people our age there. There was lots of people of all ages there. And we had a fucking fabulous time. Um, I did a lot of spanking people. Oh, awesome. Did you spit on anyone? I didn't spit on anyone this time. Yes. But I did, I did dole out a lot of spankings. You did? I, I did. love it when you do that. You were doing that when we were together in New York. You walked <laughs> around in that room with all those porn stars. And you just went up and just smacked them on the ass and handed them a condom. <laughs> That's right. It was it was awesome. Well, there was this young guy like standing up by the bar and he was 
he was talking about spankings and he, he, he swatted some other girl next to him. And I was like, that's not how you do it. Like you want to spank in, I'll give you, he's like, all right, you can do me. He pulls down his mm-hmm. pants and he's wearing <gasps> hot, he's wearing hot pink underwear. No joke. What kind of underwear? Like boxers or boxer like, briefs? I think they were boxer briefs, but yeah. they were okay. hot. They were hot pink. I think Halls has a picture of it that she can that I'll she can tweet, tweet out. But I I turned around and I grabbed one hip and I fucking wailed on him, spanked his ass hard. He shot up. He's like, oh fuck. I'm like, do you want another one? No. <laughs> Assemble the troops over at thebroadcast.com. Again, that's B-R-A-W-D-C-A-S-T. And they're also on iTunes. I've heard from the boys over at the Half Scoop podcast, that'd be Stephen, Corbin, and Bryce, that they have been tweaking their format. They just rounded the 25 show mark, so let's give a listen to the new sounding Half Scoop. All right, you guys remember a couple of weeks ago uh, on a previous episode, we talked about a petition to get a Death Star built by the American government. You remember, Ooh, Corbin? Continuity. Yes. You remember this? Yes. It's a callback. Basically, they, what, the rule was they had to get 25,000 uh, signatures for the petition to be looked at. And what I'm saying is they managed to get, I think, 32,000 in total. The White House has replied in exactly the same manner which the petition was created. And I was quite actually... I gave like a little few props. The, is this an official... This isn't like a joke thing you no, wrote. No, no. This is an this official is, response. This is officially... I got this from whitehouse.gov. All right? <laughs> and it, it is written by Paul Schross, who is the chief of the science and space branch at the White House Office Man- and Management Budget. Whoa. So like, okay. so Alternately guy never heard known of, as head nerd. Head nerd. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And he started off his response with, this isn't the petition response you're looking for. The administ- Ooh, yeah, out. see, see, he's, he's got the references. Savvy, yeah. Yeah. He, start, he says, the administration shares your desire for job creation and a strong national defense, but a Death Star isn't on the horizon. Here are a few reasons. Reason number one, the construction of a Death Star has been estimated to cost more than $850 quadrillion. We're working hard to reduce the deficit, not expand it. Co- Stephen. How did he come up with that number? With science, bitches. <laughs> but like Corbin, okay, so I'm like I I'm the I'm Paul Schross, and I come into you. I'm like, Doctor Corbin, I need you to figure out how much it costs to build a Death Star. How do you come up with those numbers? You head down to your local bookstore and buy the Star Wars Visual Encyclopedia, and it tells you. I think so. <laughs> it's like some nerd is like, I went to Harvard for God's sake, and now I remember I'm- seeing somewhere somehow it was calculated, like they put it all together. Like it's how like much half it the stuff there probably doesn't exist. Like, how can you take into account how much a giant laser beam costs? Well, how much? Like, how do you take into effect just artificial gravity? Is it like magnets on your shoes on the ground or something? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's because it's so large. I think it does have its own gravitational sort of oh, like system moon, sort of or thing? something. But then you have to take into account the large hangar bay that goes around the entire mm. ring. That's true, that's true. And then you have to factor in constant repair costs after groups of pesky rebels are constantly trying to blow it up. That's right, like, yeah, maintenance costs must be through the roof. Reason number two, the administration does not support blowing up planets. This is actually something I'm glad they came out when said, because honestly, I didn't know what America's stance on planets was before this, so I'm glad <laughs> to know. And uh, reason number three, why would, we, why would we spend countless taxpayers' dollars on a Death Star with a fundamental flaw that can be exploited by a one-man starship? <laughs> When I saw that line, I'm like, this guy is... This guy gets it. Yeah, he gets he gets it. Sweet. Catch more over at thehalfscoop.podbean.com, iTunes, and Half Scoops also on Stitcher Smart Radio. Same as us. You can catch us over there, too. Hmm. 
Tales from the Attic podcast, what is there to say? There is so little information on their website, but here's a line from their listing on iTunes. Underwhelming, crude episodes filled with ramblings and random banter from Seth and Zach. In this clip, war stories on performing on the road are rehashed. I played a show one time. I played a show, and uh, I invited my... We opened for, like... Uh, I don't know. I was in like a, a Blink-182 pop-punk band, and we had a small, small amount of fame in the Midwest, and we opened for like one of the biggest, like Bowling for Soup or, or something like that when right. they came through, and I literally saw my grandparents leave <laughs> in the middle of our set. Oh, no. Oh, they're supposed to be the ones that are like, you know... Uh, clapping and saying he's trying he's trying yeah they bought me the guitar i was playing and they they fucking walked out so they, they were more on the side of you know we gave you that instrument to play god's music or something yeah yeah <laughs> they went they went and saw Bert Bacharach afterwards <laughs> they saw they saw gordon lightfoot and uh engelbert humperdinck and, and christopher cross yeah, and, to get to. oh yeah they, they, had, they, had, they had things to do andy williams yeah <laughs> But <laughs> so how 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 did it like what are you talking like in uninterested like 20 30 people well uh, there there was like uh, uh when we fir- we first got on stage i was like there's my friend jenna and her boyfriend there's my mom there's alex's mom and there's a uh, very old dude who's really fucking into us for some reason <laughs> Right on. Every every concert has one of those. Oh, yeah. He was an old, old man wearing a shirt that said Whiskey 18 and was just fucking hammered out of his goddamn mind, but loved every second of our show. <laughs> Thankfully, he was there. Uh, he, he, he got cut off and thrown out, though, because he was obnoxious. And, then, and, and so then there were zero people watching you. Well, d- it, the crowd grew a little bit uh, when we came, because we, we, uh, we do things in uh, we had four sets, and... We uh, during our whole first set, there were very few people in the audience. And, and what are what are some of the songs that you played? Um, well, here I, I should already know this, but I will open my notes. <laughs> well, uh, let's see. Like we we really tried to to set these sets up, sets up in uh, eras of music. Because mm-hmm. uh, my uh, oh yeah, another thing that you you may not know is uh, uh, our band is all family at the moment. <laughs> So this is an incestual band? It's in a very because weird way, yes. You play music, you are related to each other, and then you make love afterwards. Exactly. <laughs> you are you are your own groupies. It's 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 gross. It's kinda like a family tree centipede. Okay, so it's like Greg and I in the garage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Greg, I hope Greg, I hope you're not listening right now, or if you are, just turn it off now. Uh, well, if you turn it off now, we love you, Greg. All right. <laughs> you will find Seth and Zach over at TalesFromTheAttic.net, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Oh, there it is. Let's rummage around in the old tweet sack for, uh, for this episode. Got a note from Ethan Detmeyer from Combat Radio asking if I would be on his show in L.A. next time I'm down. They're, they're a live show, and then they podcast after the fact. So I'm going to be in L.A., uh, and we'll be on that show Friday, February 22nd. His show does play live, so check that out if you get a chance on latalkradio.com. Uh, this has been a week or so for interviews, uh, not just the ones I, I conduct, but uh, as I mentioned earlier, Jason from Seven Days a Geek had me on Skype for an upcoming show, and just last night I 
was on Skype, uh, again, talking with Adam Harris from the Stand Up Chronicles, a show that we've featured here before. He will be featuring me on a show that I think that drops this Saturday. So uh, I'll let you know via Twitter uh, when I'm up there with a link. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll clip him playing me next time. I don't know. That sounds a little self-aggrandizing, so I probably won't do it, but I will play something. In fact, I may have Adam uh, co-host an upcoming episode of Succotash, which should be fun. Here's a list of some of the folks kind enough to mention us on Twitter this past week. Hanging Outcast, Clutch Wiggle Ent, Don't Quit Your Day, The DCAM, Nug 13, Jagged Podcast, Monica Hamburg, Matt Gorley, Menzel Poison, and the D-Head Factor. So thanks for throwing the Succotash name out there. Appreciate that. The last bit of business is an email that got into the tweet sack from Davian Dent, whose podcast, The Bitter Sound, we featured in a clip last episode. Davian says... Hi, Mark. In response to your recent call from podcast adverts, here's something from the forthcoming episode six and last in the current series of The Bitter Sound. Basically, it's me singing the Sid Vicious Sex Pistols version of Frank Sinatra's classic, My Way, but with a twist. I've changed the words in order to shout out all the podcasters who've helped me in getting this first series off the ground. So we will, uh, we're going to play your song, Davian, but I'm going to hold off till the end of the show because I do want to get to our Hal Lublin interview. Also, right after my chat with Hal will be our Burst O Durst. This time around, the lovable curmudgeon Will Durst sets his unique political bent on award show season. But that's later. We had a show devoted to the thrilling adventure hour back in Epi 37 when I interviewed Ben Blacker, one of the two originators of TAH. In this past weekend, I finally got to see the show in all of its thrilling glory when they had the cast up to play at the SF Sketchfest. It is like watching the cast of an old radio show, and one of the fixtures during that show is Hal Lublin, who not only kicks things off as the announcer, but is there setting up every sketch, and he also plays characters in the various sketches as well. Now you can hear Hal in one of his usual roles as the announcer here as he sets up one of the ads for the Thrilling Adventure Hours commercials from their regular sponsor, Patriot Cigarettes. And now, a short dramatic presentation on behalf of our sponsors, Patriot Brand Cigarettes. We take you now to a construction site. Hey there, J.P. Rockefeller! You can't walk around here! This is a construction site! Oh, me? Yeah, you, you swell. Why don't you go back to Wall Street? Charlie, it's me, Pete. Pete? Yeah, Pete. <laughs> There's something different about you, Pete. You got a haircut? No. Them new trousers there on your legs? Gosh, no. You got a new haircut? No. <laughs> Why, the only thing different about me is I'm smoking a new kind of cigarettes from the Patriot brand line of cigarettes. Patriot Elites. Patriot Elites? You bet. You know how great it is to puff on a Patriot? It's like smoking the American flag. <laughs> you bet it is. But with Elite's Patriot's premium tobacco product, it's... It's like smoking the American flag from the deck of a solid gold yacht. Well, you look like a million dollars. Oh, I'm not. But I sure smoke like I am made of that. Thanks to Patriot brand Elite's. Patriot brand cigarettes are good for your constitution. Patriot brand elites are great for it. So, I am uh, sitting with Hal Lublin. 
at uh, the downstairs room at the, uh, what is this place called? The, the, the Elephant Castle? The Elephant Castle. It's uh, sort of a, um, I think it was originally an Indian restaurant, um, although you wouldn't really be able to tell from today's menu. But, well, uh, and just like India, the British have come over and turned it into a pub. <laughs> exactly. <So>. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Hal is uh, up in San Francisco as part of the 12th Annual Sketch Fest and working with the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Yes. Um, how, how'd you get started with the uh, Thrilling Adventure Hour? I knew Ben Acker, one of the writers um, from Second City out in L.A. Mm-hmm. We were in a sketch group together, and for the first few months, this is back in 2005, he was telling me, we just started this show, and I'd love to get you in it sometime when there's a slot available. Okay. And that slot opened up. Probably third show in. So I I joined then. They said, you're going to do all the narration, uh, which I was reading straight up until the the night of the show, maybe 10 minutes before I went to Ben Blacker and said, maybe I should do, do you want me to do like characters for the narration and give the pieces some context? And he looked at me and said, yeah, whatever you want. (laughs) And so... That was uh, that was sort of my start, but but just before I, I started Thrilling Adventure, Ben Acker was also doing a four person sketch show. Okay. Um, and Mark Gagliardi, who plays Croach the Tracker and a lot of other brilliant characters, he dropped out, so I filled in for him. Oh, okay. So a another Thrilling Adventure cast member paved my way into <laughs> the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, Listeners to my podcast have heard me play clips from Thrilling Adventure Hour, and we did a show with, with Ben Blacker and sort of clipped, I think, pretty much every uh, sketch piece that normally gets done. So uh, what is your favorite of the, the various pieces? Because audiences themselves, you can tell by their responses how much they, you know, they really adore certain pieces. Yes. Beyond Belief is definitely an audience favorite, as, yeah. as is Sparks Nevada. I mean, they're both great. Yeah. Um, I, I am partial to Moonshine Holler because I play Gummy, so that's, <laughs> selfishly, that's a favorite, um, and I just started doing Philip Fathom in the last year oh, okay. uh, as part of Captain Laserbeam, so that's fun, but they're all, I mean, it's, it's hard, and any given night, a different piece could be my favorite. I think they're all so well-written, it just depends on, on which reference is geeky enough to sort of draw me to it. Interesting. Well, let's move away from Thrilling Adventure Hour for now. We'll get back to it uh, sure. in a little bit and sort of hear from your perspective sort of the nuts and bolts of how the show comes together. Because as a cast member, um, I don't know how involved you are in other aspects. We'll find out. But how did, how did you get started getting into, into sketch and improv? I mean, where did you go to school, first of all? Uh, I went to Syracuse University. Uh-huh. And I was part of the Broken Compass Players, which was our, our improv troupe. And I think I may have been the only one at the time who knew that it was um, a bastardization of the Compass Players, ah. which gave birth to Second City. <laughs> yes. Um, but I grew up a comedy nerd. I grew up watching stand-up since I was little. I watched SNL, SCTV. Um, then when I was a, a younger teenager, the state was on TV. Sure. Mr. Show when I was in college. Monty Python all through growing up. Yeah. Um, so I was just a student and lover of comedy. So I always wanted to, to be involved with it somehow. Now, had you done any performance prior to getting into Syracuse and joining the Broken Compass? I'd done high school plays. Nothing. I didn't have, like, community theater or... Actually, when I was in school, they, somebody, a returning graduate, came back to make a film. And the students got to audition for parts because it was 
a film that took place at the school. Oh. So they figured, oh, we'll just cast all people from the school. And I auditioned and did not get in. But my mother came in and auditioned and did get in. Really? Yes. <laughs> so my, my mother, God, God rest her soul, is a better actor than I am. <laughs> and now I have to carry on the mantle and, wow. and continue it's to improve. It's quite a torch to have to bear. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, so until you started doing, uh, well, how did, you get, how did you make your entree then into Broken Compass uh, if you didn't really have any real uh, improv background at that point, which isn't unusual. I mean, I don't know any improvisers really other than, I mean, there are kind of a, there's a clutch of sort of high school age improv things that go on now. It seems to be sort of, it's sort of like lacrosse or soccer or something. seems filtering further and further down yes. the, uh, to different youth groups. But without that background, how did you uh, sort of step into um, the Broken Compass players? I had done a little bit of improv in high school. We didn't, okay. we didn't have any formal troupe at all, um, but I knew I wanted, just from the little I'd done, um, I knew I wanted to do more. So when that opportunity presented itself, I went and auditioned, I think it was my sophomore or junior year. So when I was able to audition the first time, and it, I, just, I just loved it and was lucky enough to get in and, and didn't really learn much about the finesse of improv yeah. until I got out of college and started studying at Second City and, and, and Groundlings. Yeah. Um, the, that was sort of the point at which it was like, stop trying to be funny. Because it was, <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're a young starting out improviser, you push, push, push yes. all of the time. Oh, of course. So, of course, it's just like trying to push a, a big rock up up a hill. Yes, exactly. Sisyphusian, I guess, would be. Yes, the, uh... it is. It is Sisyphusian. <laughs> um, but, College was actually a very cool experience because I got to work with a lot of people who, who went on to work in the industry somewhat. One of them was Kimmy Gatewood, who's one of the oh, Apple sisters. Yeah, yeah. Um, who was great. Um, we improvised in a prison for two years. Nice. Which is like the, <laughs> those are like the dirtiest Were you doing shows. time? You said you two years. Were you yeah, yeah. I was there. doing improv. I did a turn. Instead of doing license plates, you were in this prison improv group. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was how I had to repay my debt to society. No, we would come in like a group of college kids to perform. Somebody at uh, Syracuse Stage, which is the professional theater that is associated with Syracuse University, was some community outreach person. And she would set up a show. She'd say the prisoners love it. And you'd come in and they would... They would file in, and it would just be the dirtiest. <laughs> and be like, we need a place where two people might work together. All right, he's fucking her. Okay. <laughs> Great. I heard Dairy Queen. Here we go. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so you, you said you, um, when you auditioned for it, you were a sophomore or junior. So had you seen the, the Broken Compass playing, like when you were a freshman? And Yes. I saw them. They were the only improv troupe at college i mean they were they were good they were fun to watch right and i thought that's i need to do that that's yeah. what i have to be doing yeah about what year was this this was 1995 or 6 um so whose line was was on yeah yes that was my introduction to okay, improv yeah. it was the british the british whose line yeah um which i loved i loved ryan styles and colin mockery and tony slattery all those guys were yeah were fantastic. well i uh, i got to um I got my start in uh, uh, improv. I was running a comedy club in Seattle, Washington, mm -hmm. and theater sports had just started to come down from Canada. 
And so uh, I, the, uh, the Seattle Theater Sports Group had gotten tossed out of the theater they were in, and they were looking for a space, and we were dark on Mondays. So they approached me, and I said, yeah, you guys can play here on Mondays, but the only catch is you have to teach me how to do improv. Because <laughs> like you, I'd seen it, and I'd really gotten sort of bitten by the bug. Yeah, and uh, so they said okay. So I became part of the theater sports group, and we would fu- we would play against teams from Canada. So Ryan Stiles was on the Vancouver team. Oh wow! And so I got to play with him, which was fantastic, uh, and that was a real treat. Um, but uh, and then the I, from there I moved to uh, back down to San Francisco where I was from, and I ended up taking over as director of a house group for the Punchline Comedy Club. Nice, uh, and that was called the Comedy Underground, which was produced by the same people that, that ran the comedy club in Seattle, which is why I had the same name as the yeah. comedy club. They said, well, we'll just call the group the Comedy Underground. And, <laughs> and there was a group called Fault Line down here. And as all improv groups, they eventually kind of fell apart. Sure. And two of the members from that group we sort of took on as improv orphans, and that was Greg Proops and Michael McShane. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they played uh, with, the, with the Comedy Underground for uh, a couple of years, which was great. And Robin Williams would drop in and play with us which was fantastic. Um, and, and like you, I didn't have, even in theater sports, they never really taught me how to do improv. There was never any sort of an instruction yeah. element to it. So I kind of just picked it up as I went. Which, uh, And then with the Comedy Underground, I was literally, I'd been sort of inserted into the group by the, the people that were producing the show, uh, ostensibly to go, well, you know, you're, you're good at improv, we want you to be in this, but, but they're... they're their sort of secret agenda was to push the current director out. <laughs> and so I was elevated to the director of this group, and everyone in the group had at least 10 years, if not more, improv experience on me. So I then had to pretend like I actually knew what the hell I was doing, which is just a bass backwards way to do it. And like 25 years later, I ended up teaching improv. And it was just like, it was, it was very hard, hard fought trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, now I'm supposed to be teaching this. What, are, what, what should I have learned up till now. Did you find, though, that when you were directing those people who had those 10 years of experience on you, that that sort of uh, it accelerated your oh. education? Oh, God, yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you had to try to stay one page ahead in the textbook. Oh, as yeah. It were. I remember, oh, just the, the fear of, I was on stage one night, and uh, Robin was our, we, we had kind of an SNL sort of uh, format. We, mm-hmm. had a, we always had a guest comic, and so Robin would do it occasionally. They would do a, st- a fifteen-minute set, and then they would, you know, they would play these different improv games with yeah. us. And at the time, I mean, Robin is impossible to catch anyway. Except Overton can stay up with him. Rick <laughs> Overton can stay up with him. Uh, I can. I've seen Greg Proops and Mike McShane run rings around him. Wow! But it, he's tough to stay up with. And one, we were doing a Shakespeare scene, which I couldn't do any Shakespeare thing to save my life at that time. <laughs> And I ended up, he came out and he was doing this, uh, this soliloquy, basically, and other people were sort of interacting with him, and he just kept killing everybody, literally, <laughs> in the scene until I was the last one there. I was going toe-to-toe with him, and I, I just kept saying yes and no, yay and nay, was all I could think of to say. <laughs> and he just kept drawing it out longer and longer and longer, until finally he killed me. And then it was just him sort of striding around. Finishing the soliloquy, it was crazy. <laughs> I, I heard a story about, about Robin Williams once of him watching an improv set from the back of a room and his wife having to physically restrain him <laughs> from going up on stage because his mind is constantly coming up with bits. Oh, they yeah. have to be in the world. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the good thing is he's... Uh, he, uh, 
over the course of time, he has mellowed a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it may, it may have done, had to do with part of his uh, art, heart operation. <laughs> I don't know. But <laughs> right. we were doing just a pickup set last year at a club here in, uh, up in Marin County called George's. And he just came along with a guy who, who uh, writes with him, Dan Spencer, yeah. who we invited Dan to come along. And we didn't even know who Robin was. And he just shows up. And we're in this <laughs> basically a bar. And nobody knows he's going to be there. And it's one of those kind of, you know, stages in the corner. And the lighting is for, like, a band. It's not even for a comedy, so it's kind of hard to see. Yep. And there were maybe 25 people in the audience. And there were probably, I don't know, I think six or seven of us doing improv. And uh, we get up there, and it takes about a minute and a half before they start recognizing it's Robin. Because he's got this be- He had grown a beard for something he was doing. Yeah. And the word gets out, and you can see people with their phones out. And within 20 minutes, the place is packed. It's just so funny. I mean, social media has has basically changed the way all of show business runs. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but he was very, in that scenario, he was, he'd become this very giving improviser. He was willing to sit back and let you have the space and the air and stuff to develop, which was, uh, it was nice to see after, you know, having been in that, that bombast of yes. early Robin Williams. In the vortex. Yeah. Um, so let's get back. That, that's all about me, which means I'll probably cut most of this out. But, oh. uh, well, maybe I'll leave it. We'll see. Um, but uh, let's get back to you. You, you, you finish your, your time at Syracuse University and the prison. Yes. Uh, I'm glad you you did manage to repay your debt to society. That's right. I did my time, and I'm, I'm now back so, contributing. So you're, in, so you're in New York. Where do you go from there? Um, I went back to Philadelphia, which is where I was from. Okay. And I started working as an apprentice at a, at a professional theater. Okay. And that was that was like a seventy to eighty hour a week job sometimes. Wow. So wow. I didn't get uh, the whole time I was planning. Like, oh, I'll, I'll start a sketch comedy group oh. and we'll we'll revolutionize the comedy scene in Philadelphia, which I'm sure anybody else in Philadelphia at the time <laughs> who wanted to do sketch comedy had a very similar thought. Oh. Um, <laughs> but the closest that I ever got in Philadelphia was doing stand up once at an at an open mic. Really, I'd done it twice in college. I love stand-up, have a ton of respect just for the form. And uh, the first two times were just like, the salad spinner's weird, right? Who needs to spin the salad? Um, so I decided the third time I would, I would go up and I would just improvise. I was like, oh, I'll just wing it. Yeah. It was at an open mic uh, on Roosevelt Boulevard, and there were six other people there, and they were... Uh, the five other comedians who wanted <laughs> to go work out their bits, and and a friend of mine who came, <laughs> and I I hadn't I was thinking in the lobby, what am I gonna do? This is and and in my mind, I'm like, this could be the set where where I discover I'm really good at this, yeah. and it takes off. So I go up on stage, and my first joke was, you know, in the lobby waiting to go up, I I noticed that uh, Gary Coleman is selling his his personal effects. Uh, online, I have dibs on his pride, and nobody laughed because it's not a great joke. <laughs> and then I was like, I don't know what else. Uh-oh. Pants are uh, weird. And they're on, they're like shirts for your legs. Um, and then I, I said, you know, a lot of people do Elvis impersonations, but I'd like to do my impression of what it would be like if he was here right now. And then I just dropped on the <laughs> stage and laid there for. About two minutes until my time was up. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) and then said thank you with my hands shaking, Um, and that was the last time I did stand up. Really? So that I came out to L.A. just to study uh, sketch and and improv. Okay. Um, And what 
what were you going to do with with those skills? I mean, other than coming out to study them, were you going to be an actor? Were you going to be a voiceover person? Uh, I wanted to act mm-hmm. for for sure. I had a like my list of goals. When I worked at the theater, we had to put together goals, and my my goal at thirty was to have an Oscar for best supporting actor, which uh, I'm still six years late for. <laughs> <laughs> but my thought, my thought was, well, I, you know, I love doing comedy, so I'll just keep working at that and and see, see if I can get, uh, get on a sketch show that's on the air. Maybe I'll get on SNL. Maybe I'll create my own Mister Show type of thing, um, which is which always seems easier when you <laughs> when you don't know how much work goes into it. Oh yeah, and you just see it and think, oh, I'd love to. It's not even I can do that. It's I'd love to do that. Sure. Um, and I kind of fell into voiceover through through studying at Second City. One of my teachers was directing um, anime. Oh, okay. So I went and auditioned and got a role and did a little bit of that here and there. And then because of Thrilling Adventure, that was how I got a role in a cartoon that oh, led nice. to me having an agent, that led to me sort of auditioning more. And the more I did voiceover, the more I discovered how much I loved doing that specifically. Yeah. And Thrilling Adventure is like getting to do a ton of different voiceover jobs once a month. That's great. That's so, great. Yeah. Um, so what is your, what's your, your day-to-day existence like in, in L.A.? What do, you, what do you do in between work? What do you do when you get work? I work for an internet company, okay. for an internet rewards company doing outreach for them. So I have a full-time job there, which mm-hmm. is great. I, I enjoy doing it, and I can record and send in auditions. So every once in a while I work, and... Um, when I'm not doing that, I sort of lead this sort of normal life. Right. And then once a month, we do this show, and it's and it keeps growing and growing. So it's it's a very odd experience to plug into and then plug out of. Yeah. Uh, now the the you work in an office then during the during the rest of the time. Yeah. Now do yeah. those do those the people you work with do they know about this this other existence that you have, or there are people at work that come to the show? Yeah, yeah, they, they, people have. My boss has come to the show, co-workers have come to the show, um, which, is, which is nice. So it's, it doesn't feel like I'm leading a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde That's good. type of life. They sort of complement one another, which is, which is nice. That's good. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of um, separation in the world of podcasting. There are a lot of podcasters, now that I've been doing this show for a couple of years, that uh, you don't really know much about them. And if you go to their show's websites, there's never really any names associated. And you find out, if, as I've talked to them, that, well, no, I don't really want people to know that I do this. Uh, I've got a, <laughs> a job. You know, they, and then some of the podcasts, I mean, are completely unfiltered, completely filthy, uh, which is fine. I mean, at the moment, there's no FCC sure. override any of this stuff. I'm sure that will change over the course of time once podcasting becomes more and more popular. I mean, it's popular now, but it's still, you know, very much under the radar. Yes. Um, and so uh, there's, a, there's a, I was telling the story uh, last night to somebody, there's a, a, a songwriter uh, who does comedy and sci-fi songs named John Anilio. Okay. And he does a podcast with a partner called um, Functional Nerds. <laughs> and uh, we featured his music and uh, did a whole show around him uh, on Succotash. And that John Anelio is not his name. It's his stage name, and he is a high school music teacher. And I asked him, I said, do your students have no idea? And he even, he even performs at places. He, I mean, he goes to, like, uh, 
um, like comic book conventions and stuff and does his music and stuff. And your high, your high school students have no idea that this is the same guys? No, not at all. Nobody's ever busted me, figured it out, which is just crazy, you know? Um, so that's good that you have a, a nice uh, understanding from your coworkers, and it's not like a secret. Yeah, I never thing. wanted. I never wanted to go into a situation uh, either working somewhere. I didn't want to feel like anybody was being deceived. So we went in and, and interviewed, and you know, I love working there. It's a great company, and I was clear when I started. I said, "This is something that I do. That is a part of my life." So I just want to make sure we're all okay with it. And they were very, you know, that was sort of that was part of the. Um, advantage of getting into a startup as it was starting up. Yeah, I mean there were less than twenty people when oh, okay. I started there, um, but it's a you know it's a great group of people in a great environment where that stuff is. <clears throat> you're not discouraged from having things outside of the company as well, long as you're getting your work done and not spending all day like. Not, you know what? I can't work today. I'm just going to do some voices. Yeah. So I'm going to close my door and I'll be workshopping in here. <laughs> Well, Los Angeles and New York are probably the only two cities in the world where they've got people that are regularly, you know, going out on auditions and doing these different things. So I imagine there must be uh, more tolerance for it there than in other places. I think there has to be there. there and it, it goes. I think it goes one way or the other. Either somebody is uh, has a company where that's where that's okay, um, and then other people we will not hire actors if you tell us you're an actor. We are definitely not going to hire you because. That means you're going to be out the door in three months. But yeah, you well, know, it, I'm still auditioning. I've been at my company for three years. Oh, that's great. So, you know. um, yeah, it's funny that, uh, and I think that the the scale of how far up the ladder that goes uh, was illustrated. I was doing a part in a, a web series a friend of mine was doing from L.A., but he was shooting it up here. So mm-hmm. he called me up and said, "Hey, we're going to be shooting, you know, a few days up there. If you want a part in this thing, it'd be easier for me to use people that are from up there than." have to bring everybody up. So I was one of the few people they got from up here. And uh, one of the other guys in the cast, I'm looking at him, God, you look so familiar. And it turns out he's a lawyer at the firm in L.A. that my lawyer works at. <laughs> and it's like, and so, but he's just up here doing this goofy part in this web series. <laughs> he's like, don't tell anybody at my firm. But he has a, he uses, I mean, they all know it, but he, he has a completely different name, performance name. You know, he's in SAG and everything else, but it's not, it does not cross paths with his, his law persona. It's just kind of funny. It's unbelievable. To me. <laughs> um, but if somebody called and suddenly you were uh, going to be cast in the next, uh, you know, um, Square pants, SpongeBob Square Pants oh, as a voice. Uh, what, what, what? Ha- I mean, is that something that's in the back of your mind? Is that a, uh, an aspiration? I've, I've definitely thought about it, and and my immediate thought, and and whether it's possible or not, is I could probably make both things work. Yeah, that's that's in my mind. It's like, oh well, animation, uh, you know, working on that stuff is a few hours a week. That's true. And outside of that, I can come in early and stay late and. That, that in my mind it seems possible. Yeah. Um, You'd have to wait and see what the situation was. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to wait and see. But it's. I, it's. Um, I wouldn't. I would never want somebody to work for me who was always looking out the door. Yeah. So I don't look out the door, as I work. It's just sort of. Yeah. I'll take stuff as it comes and figure it out. And there are times where I've booked jobs and said, "Listen, I have a job. I take a day off and go do it." Right. So it's. So far, that's that's worked. Good. Yeah, that's good. Um, let's get to the sort of technical aspect of 
sort of using your voice. I mean, we're in a medium as as a podcast where um, I, I I don't I'm not very very critical of the shows that we do clips from in terms of their content. I mean, content is what it is, and it's, it's very subjective. There's shows that I think are god awful that have huge followings, you know. So okay, it's working for somebody. So who am I to say this show is bad or good? Sure, but. There's an element of sound quality that I do harp on people. One is technical, which is, you know, if this is an audio medium, you should make it as technically good sounding as you possibly can. Right. Um, but there's a lot of people that are in this, I'm going to call it a business, although podcasting isn't really a business. <laughs> yeah, I struck uh, it rich in the podcast business, yeah, exactly. and now I'm retiring. Exactly. So unless you're at that rarefied top of the, top of the food chain, uh, you're not really doing this as a living, and people do this for the love of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a, uh, not as a, as a result of that, but because of the fact that this is not a profession, people aren't really schooled in how to take care of their voices. Right. Uh, you'll often hear, you know, people apologizing. I did it just a couple episodes ago. I've got a cold, but I've got to get this thing out this week, so pardon me <laughs> for my voice. Um, so what are some of the things that you do as somebody who, you know, you do depend on, on your vocal apparatus? What sort of things do you do to sort of maintain vocal health? voice health um one thing that is that is sort of a simple thing is i do not drink super cold water Mm. it's supposed to be bad for your vocal cords i try to room temperature-ish water is better for you um the only other trick that i have is if my voice is scratchy or i know i'm going to be going really hard at my voice i'll take a a two tablespoons of honey and just swallow it and it okay I, i had a uh a job once where it was like, it was a voice up here. like, And I knew I had to do it for two hours. And I, my voice was felt like it does right now after doing two shows last yeah. night and being, you know, spending time after the show in rooms with a lot of volume. And I went and swallowed some honey and made it through the whole session without a problem. It's just... Okay. I wish I, I wish I understood the science of it better and had like a treatise for you, but those are those are sort of the tips. I'm gonna imagine that it acts as a sort of artificial <laughs> artificial mucus. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> probably it. It's, it's nature's mucus. <laughs> Other than mucus, which is of course nature's yeah. mucus. Well, that's nature's honey. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, there. Good point. Um, what about you know? Uh, vocal rests. I know there's Broadway actors who will take, you know, they, they literally won't talk. I think Larry Hagman was famous for, he one like every Sunday, he literally would not talk. He wouldn't answer the phone. He wouldn't talk to anybody. He just <laughs> literally would not speak. Uh, I try to use my voice less after, after shows sometimes. I mean, it, I just don't, I don't strain my voice as much as I do doing a show or, or use it as as much like stretch it and sort of twist it around yeah. in in everyday life. So, I mean, it's uh, there is something to vocal rest, but I I've never gone like a day. Uh-huh. I can't speak today. I have to put my scarf on and just sit around the house with the vaporizer. Um, what about um, doing voices? Because I mean, in the show last night, you did a, a number of different voices uh, based on whatever the the particular sketch was. So. Um, how do you how do you find those voices? And then once you've found them, how do you remember, you know, what that voice was? What the sort of the different components are from an audio audio standpoint? Um, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, since I was a kid, if I heard a weird voice, I would always just try to imitate it. Mm-hmm. So it, I sort of, not that I'm a very good impressionist, but 
I've always been sort of like just doing voices and making fun of people <laughs> in public. Um, but then one of the things I learned just through sort of studying voiceover is that, that characters come out of people trying to do impressions often of someone else. So there's some root, like Homer Simpson is Dan Castellaneta doing Walter Matthau. Uh, <laughs> and if you hear the very early Tracy Ullman stuff, it yeah. sounds a lot more Walter Matthau-ish, and then it sort of turned into its own thing. Yeah. Um, so most of, most of what I do, especially in terms of narration, comes from um, just a specific, like news, the newsreel stuff for Amelia Earhart comes from yeah. newsreels that I listened oh, okay. to and, and watched as a kid. Yeah. Um, when I do when I do the Captain Laserbeam narration, it's me trying to do Ted Knight and Super Friends. <laughs> okay. Um, the Sparks Nevada one has changed a lot. It started uh, more of like a Gabby Hayes, and now it's more of a uh, Sam Elliott. <laughs> okay. All right. But yeah. it's not like I can't really do a Sam Elliott impression, so it's my own yeah. sort of version of uh, of Sam Elliott. And then uh, other things. Uh, the, the Felt Fathom was the only odd one. It was actually here last year. Hmm. Um, we were in rehearsals for the show, and Christopher Maloney was playing the part. But when people don't show up, a lot of times I'll fill in for them. Okay. So I get up on stage, and I, I look at that part, and I go, oh, okay. Oh, he's a Batman. But which Batman is he? Is he Adam West? Is he Michael Keaton? Yeah. And then I look at the dialogue, and I'm like, oh, it's Christian Bale. Do I do a Christian Bale Batman? I don't know if I do one. So I just got up to the mic, and... Just started talking like this, and I was like, "Oh, I guess I, I kind of do do one, one that's close enough that people will will get that that's what it is." That's funny. So um, yeah, you're talking about creating these voices that are you know an an attempt to do an impression of somebody is yeah. um, reminiscent of uh, we were talking before we started recording about Dana Carvey, um, and uh, he's a, a friend of the show, and uh, having worked with him for a number of years, it's interesting when he does characters because some of the things we've worked on. He'll create a character voice for, and he does the exact same thing. But he'll—it's almost like working with a scientist. He'll say, "Well, I'm going to do this part Clint Eastwood, part Owen Wilson, part such," <laughs> and he starts like, you know, sort of dialing these different sort of uh, volumes of those characters together to come up with a unique voice. Yes. That yeah, if you deconstructed it, you could probably hear those things in it, but it's none of those things in particular. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, and and if you go into it the other way, which I have sometimes, which is like, oh, I'll just make a choice on this, and it could be something that works really well, but because I didn't take the time to put it together, if I don't listen to it again, I'll forget what I did. Yeah, because it didn't, I didn't come into it with an intention of I'm gonna, I'm going to attempt to mix these things together, just like a scientist, and see how it works. Yeah, and then then it makes it, then you've got a formula that you can recreate. Yes, as something a, to like base it off, as of. opposed to a horrible lab accident. <laughs> exactly. His <laughs> uh, other thing he talked about because you talked about you don't feel you can really do you know impressions very well because he's you know known for doing his impressions, but he will sure. uh, be one of the first to say he doesn't do good impressions. But what he does do is um, he will distill elements of of the person's presentation mm -hmm. and then blow those out of proportion. So the voice doesn't have to you know his George W. Bush doesn't really sound like George W. Bush, but because he adds all these other sort of um, tweaked elements of the way George Bush speaks, it suddenly makes it this very potent caricature. Yes, and, it, and, and <laughs> he was so saturated, that George Bush was so saturated in my mind that if I saw 
the actual president at the time speaking. I was like, oh, he doesn't sound like he's supposed to. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he, he's, he, Dayton is someone who, who realizes that a lot of the impressions that he used to do when he was doing stand-up before he got into SNL, well, those people are dead. So the, there's no audience for them. Uh, right. So he will, A, use those as character voices because it's sort of like, I don't know if you watch um, uh, cartoons uh, that I watch because our, our age difference, is a, there's a bit of a spread there, but mm-hmm. there were a lot of uh, Fritz Freeling cartoons that sure. used dead-on impressions. You know, there was a, you know, there was a uh, secret squirrel's assistant was like a Peter Lorre impression, yep. and it was kind of amazing. And so he uses like dead dead celebrities as characters and things he's doing now. He'll do a Jimmy Stewart, he'll do a Cary Grant, and that sort of thing. Um, do you have a desire to do impressions? Is that part of something you want to include in your repertoire? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess if, if I could do them, that would be great. And I don't know, there may be some that I can do that I'm just not sort of thinking of, but I mean, it's fun to, it's fun to see where those voices take you, where, where they're based. And even, even being asked to do it, if you, if you find those hooks that, that like, like Dana would, it's at least recognizable to the audience. That's what I always think. A good impression, you have a couple of bases that you have to hit. And if you can hit those bases, then people will get what you're trying to do and you have some room to maneuver. Yeah. But I've heard, you know, a lot of people, when they do Arnold, do that, the yelling Arnold. And uh, there's a guy named Josh Robert Thompson. And he, he does Arnold... Um, I think on Craig Ferguson, oh, okay. and he's done it on Howard Stern, uh-huh. and he sounds just like him because he nails that, just the normal, like, how are you speaking voice, yes. but it's, it's like, dead on, and he's done it in front of me, and it's, it's frightening, because he not only finds the basis, but he's just got the entire sort of texture of the voice, and that, that's something that I, that I don't do, but it's, it's incredible to see, like, you can have different Al Pacino impressions. Sure. There's yelling Al Pacino and then there's Bill Hader's Al Pacino. That's yes. <laughs> exactly what he sounds like when he does an interview. Yeah. And that's the... If you can do that, it's just... That's unbelievable. That's like another level entirely. Yeah. I know a lot of impressionists that... Um, or I imagine there's a lot of them. I know a few impressionists, uh, including you know some of the famous ones, that they, they can't sometimes get an impression until they hear someone else doing the impression. And then they'll go, oh, okay... Now I can kind of deconstruct where that came from. Uh, Rick Overton will talk about, um, you know, so-and-so nailed, found the key to the lock on that impression, so everybody's now doing that guy's impression of the person and not the person themselves. You know, like uh, Christopher Walken was one that, I think Jay Moore was one of the first ones who really found that key to that lock. And so now everybody really kind of does Jay Moore's impression of Christopher Walken. Yeah. You know, are there any that, any impressions that you do that just sort of come to you because of the natural timber of your voice, that sort of thing? Jeez, I'm trying to think of one. I can't think of one specifically when I went, oh, that person's voice is, is just like uh, mine. Although uh, James uh, James Urbaniak found a, found a commercial from the 80s for one of those, you remember the gag like tapes that you would buy yes. for your answering machine yes. that would be like different ones? Yeah. There's one where somebody is, is singing the can-can. They're like, sorry, I'm not home right now, but leave a message at the tone. That He shared it on Twitter and said, at Hell Lublin, is this some of your lost work? And I played the video, and it sounded just like me. Oh, that's funny. So that's maybe the only impression I can do. The guy who does the can-can on uh, a novelty answering machine tape. Well, that's a unique claim to fame. It is, yeah. Who else can do that? Um... 
what do you think is a, a, a good place for people that uh, want to do voice work? Because, you know, people always sort of look at, at voice work as, wow, that's a, that would be such a great gig to have, you know. Go to work in your sweats. Yes. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, audition by computer. Yes, yes, that's, that's the, the one thing people, people like, you just, just go in, you have to wear pajamas if you're doing voiceover. <laughs> I walked in in a, in a rhinoceros ski hat and then just suspenders and fireman's pants. That's how I work, and I won't have it any other way. Um, but as far as starting out, uh, one thing that helped me uh, was I actually took a couple classes that, that taught me a little bit more about what the audition process is like and, and sort of what to expect and, and how to break down a script which I hadn't really spent a lot of time doing. Yeah. And, and some people are maybe naturals at it and be able to do that right away, but I think it helps to, to sort of understand what you're actually getting into and, and what, what the expectation is and how to use the tools that you have physically to, to, to sort of make the most out of whatever you're given. Yeah. Okay, that's good. I mean, people, they, it's a mystery to people. You know, yes. As sort of the inner workings of almost any profession would be. Yeah. Um, but because it's something that they're constantly encountering, you know, they're hearing those actors all the time, and they go, well, how does, how does that work? So that's the, I think those are good good tips. Um, and that's the crazy thing, before, just before no, you no, move no, on, no. the crazy thing about the voiceover industry is it's, it's unique in that you have a smaller group of people doing a larger number of jobs, like John DiMaggio, who is not only super talented, but a, but a really great guy. I mean, he's working on three, four, five different series at once because his voice is incredible, and he can do this great range and be Aquaman and Bender and a Madagascar penguin. He can sort of go go all over the place, and he's, he's great at it. So you... you once you get in, you can get a lot of work, but that's that's sort of part of the challenge is you have these incredibly talented people who can be on a bunch of different shows at once because you don't see them. It's, there's no need for exclusivity. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I wonder if that some of that uniqueness will go away because I'm thinking of it in sort of a... <coughs> excuse me. I'm thinking of it in terms of the connection to the way acting used to be mm -hmm. on film. Uh, not so much in television, but starting in film, which was this idea that, well, I'm an actor. I can play a variety of different parts. But over the years, it's been, well, now we're just looking for a look. Right. And people don't have the range they used to have. They may have the range. They're never allowed to use it. It's like, right. well, no, you're, you're a great bad guy, you know, so you're going to play that same tone in every piece you're going to be in at that point, unless you really say, no, I'm not doing this anymore, and I'm going to do a smaller movie so I can play, you know, show some whatever. Um, and I'm thinking of some people, friends of mine that have been doing voiceovers and whatnot where they'll go in, they'll just, you know, they'll do 20 different voices and mm -hmm. ultimately they're just picked because the, their natural voice is what they want. And so that leads me to think, well, will there be a time when people will just go, you come in and you'll just, or you'll send in your audition and it'll just be, well, no, it, it's not so much you have a look, but now you have a sound. Yes. Well, well yeah, yeah, there, there is something to that. that. I do think that there are people who, um, who can get specific types of work over and over again because they have that sort of voice print to them. They do this one voice really well, even if they do a ton of other voices, which they may get to do on occasion, but, but this is sort of their thing. I mean, look at all the movie trailer guys. Yes. They're not doing a ton of other work. That's true. Even though they may be great at it, because their voice, yeah. And you can make a great living that way. And that's sort of the... Uh, you know, I, like I said before, I started out with sort of a lofty goal, and then it just became, 
you know what I'd like to work if I could make a living of this yeah. that would be wonderful yeah um, let's get back to thrilling adventure hour I said we get back to sort of the nuts and bolts of how things work um, when do you get involved in the script how how much in, in advance of the show do you know the material anything like that usually about a week out is when we get the script mm -hmm. and we try to coordinate rehearsals it, it used to be we were sort of a self-contained unit enough so at least that we could we get together on a day and rehearse like run through the show a couple times and as the show's grown and more people have joined the family it becomes necessary to break it up. So we're going to try to do a Beyond Belief rehearsal here and a Sparks rehearsal here, and all these people are working. Um, so sometimes we get to rehearse segments beforehand. Other times we'll show up at the theater a couple hours early and run through everything then. Um, so it's, it has a last-minute feel to it, but also those of us who have been doing it, we've looked over the script at that point, and we're sort of ready to go. We know what to expect, so it's not... I've never really felt unprepared going into the show, even though it sounds like when you go and you rehearse it right before you go on stage. And part of that may be the comfort of knowing that your script is in front of you, so you don't have to worry about forgetting a line. That's not that's sort of taken out of the equation. It's just sort of making strong choices and, and working with one another. Um, do you have any input in terms of, once you've read the script, line suggestions, anything like that, or you just come in and kind of do, do the job as written? Um, there, there are people in our cast who are really good at rewriting their lines on the fly if needed. Mark Evan Jackson is like, you'll give him three lines of text knowing that he'll sort of fill in the spaces in between. Not that his part is written and complete, but just his style is he likes to improvise around things and he's great at it. And it's made the, it, it's what makes that Sparks Nevada character so great. Yeah. And people know. But, you know, people know he's going to do it, and he'll, he'll say that. He'll say, you know, I'm going to keep going. If it's somebody new, I'm going to keep going. Just cut me, you know, just talk over me. I'm just going to keep going. Um, and then Paul, I've seen Paul a couple of times when, we're, when going through a script. He'll do a line, and then I'll have a thought about a different way to do it, and he'll mark it down. But, I mean, it's, the, the, we all stay really close to the text, by and large, because it's so well written. And they've put together a cast of actors who understand sort of their rhythms. Mm -hmm. So I, I haven't, I've never seen changes that are on a huge scale, but, you know, we always have room to play uh, a little bit. Um, where do you think your involvement with um, Thrilling Adventure Hour is going to go? Because in talking to Ben Blacker a few episodes ago, you know, there's, the, there's always been the hope of breaking the different, you know, pieces out into a, into a TV project, uh, web series, things like that. Um, because this is a, sort of an audio performance, even mm -hmm. when you're seeing the show, it's like watching a live production of a radio show yeah. uh, back in the 30s and 40s. Um, how much do you think the voice actors would be involved in what would happen if it became a TV series? I don't know. Um, I know that if Acker and Blacker had their way, that we would be with them for all of the things they did. They've sort of assembled a troop. Right. But at the same time, as the show grows, it's sort of created an opportunity for all of us to, to grow with it. I mean, not that I am famous by any stretch of the imagination, but that there are people who know what I do that I haven't met and enjoy it blows my mind. And that's come from doing this show. And it's as definitely through the Kickstarter, 
with all these the web series coming up and the graphic uh, concert film graphic novel it's just created these incredible opportunities and for somebody who does who does voice for people to be able to hear what you do and then talk to you about it afterwards especially places like this um it, it's almost limitless where where it could lead and I'm shocked that, that a lot of what they've done with the show isn't on television in some one form or another. Um, it, it blows my mind because there are people who are missing out on something that I think could be huge. Um, and Acker and Blacker, to their credit, are very patient about it. And, you know, they go and do the best they can and they'll pitch and they continue to work and... It just it just keeps growing, so it's it's hard it's hard to imagine a version of it that exists without without us doing it. Right. But I mean, who, you know, who knows? It's, I don't want to be the guy in the pocket. It's like, yeah, I'm going to be with it. You know, no matter where it goes, and then and then not be in it. Yeah. I know that's the that's the hope is that is that it's an ensemble and we can keep it going. Yeah. Um, well, just in closing, uh, if you. Uh, have you had a chance to think about um, the po- about podcasting at all? Do you guest on podcasts? Are you interested in doing your own podcast? Is that a- anything that's sort of entered your your sphere at this point? Um, I've thought about doing a podcast. I just don't know. I haven't figured out what I want to do that would that would sort of contribute to the landscape in any sort of way. Like, what is something that somebody would pull out of a podcast that I did that that they might not get elsewhere? Right. Um, not that that's not possible. I just haven't uh, thought about it that way. But I love doing podcasts. This is this has been a blast. You know, I always I always love sort of appearing on other people's uh, podcasts. Great, excellent. Well, uh, we have our own booth announcer, Bill Haywatt. Uh, but if we ever have a need for some uh, side announcing job, maybe we'll give you some work. You telling me to roll him down a flight of steps? Yeah, it happens. You could. It would have very easy. He drinks a lot, so that that right. would be an easy takeover. Believe me. <laughs> Why don't, if it's easy, who wants it, right? Well, that's true. It doesn't really pay very well, first of all. You really have to think about that. Well, Hal, thanks very much for being on the show. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Continued success with, uh, with both Thrilling Adventure Hour and other th- stuff that comes up. And to you with Succotash and other things that come up. Thank you very much, sir. Hey, guys. Will Durst here to sound the alarm, warning all you good folks out there to keep your wits about you. And if you find yourself out of the streets... You'd be well advised to carry a stainless steel umbrella with you because it's award season and golden-plated statuettes are being tossed around like singles at a strip bar. We've already made it through the Golden Globes and the Screen Actor Guild Awards with the Grammys and the Oscars right around the corner, so this might be the perfect time to weigh in with a barnacle on the belly of the awards ship, the Wilderst Annual Political Animal Awards. So here they are, and the first award, Best Impression of a Reanimated Halloween Pumpkin, and the winner is, I'm sorry, we're all winners here. The award goes to Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell. The Better Switch to Decaf Really Soon Award, Joe Biden. The Collateral Damage Award, picking shrapnel out of his widow's peak, Wisconsin Congressman Paul Ryan. The clock is ticking loud enough to pierce eardrums on three different continents award. It's a three-way tie. Hugo Chavez, Fidel Castro, and Bashar al-Assad. The North to Alaska award. Sarah Palin. She's going home. The heart of a plucked chicken award. 
to Senator Harry Reid for managing to avoid altering the filibuster rules when he had a chance. The Better to Be Lucky Than Good Award for the second year in a row, President Barack Obama. The Why Doesn't Anybody Return My Calls Anymore Award. Carl Rove gets this award, and it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. The Head in the Sand Lifetime Achievement Award, the coveted ostrich, goes to Wayne LaPierre, Executive Vice President of the NRA. And finally, the Continent of Atlantis Award for the fastest, most complete disappearance in political history, Governor Mitt Romney. For Suckatash, the podcast of comedy podcasts, I'm Will Durst. You can fill your cheek pouches with more Durst at willdurst.com and read his tweets at Will Durst on Twitter. That concludes another edition of Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast. I'd like to thank our special guest, Hal Lovelin. You can always hear Hal as part of the Thrilling Adventure Hour at thrillingadventurehour.com or at nerdist.com. Next episode is Suckatash number 50. 50! Can't believe it. And our very special guests will be the members of Super Ego, one of the hottest podcasts around. I was so jazzed to talk to these guys that we talked for a long time, so the whole show will be devoted to Super Ego. But after episode 50, we will be back in Clipland. I've got some special guest co-hosts lined up in the coming weeks. Royal and Doodle from England are going to help me out. I've also got Joe Klosick coming back to tear some podcasters some new ear holes, and lots more in store. So if there's a favorite comedy podcast you listen to but haven't heard us feature on the show, please drop me a line at mark, M-A-R-C, at succotashshow.com and let me know about it. You can also call into our Succotash hotline and leave us a message. That number is area code 818-921-7212. And if you are a comedy podcaster and would like us to feature a clip from your show, you can send us a three to five minute MP3 clip to clips at succotashshow.com. Like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, thumbs up us on Stitcher, and retweet us at Show on Twitter. Right after Bill Haywatt gets done with all the bells and whistles, rather than a succotash recipe this time, we're going to hear the unique version of My Way as rendered like fat from a goose by Davy and Dent. And after he's done, please don't forget to pass the succotash. You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants. And imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com or at Suckatash Show on iTunes. And even at Suckatash Show on your smartphone Stitcher app. Follow Suckatash on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Friend Suckatash on Facebook. Email us at marc at succotashshow.com or just pick up that phone and give Succotash a ring at 1-818-921-7212. Succotash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino at Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please... Pass the succotash. And now, live on stage, Mr. Davian Dead from the Bitter Sound Podcast.
singing my way.
ever had the feeling you should be listening to a new podcast now? www.thebittersound.com Available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes.